Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Jason Neifer, and you're in the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. Good evening from the Weston Galleria in Dallas, Texas, where we do have Internet connectivity. But uh, you were... uh, you were experiencing the digital divide in a very raw and personal way last week. Yes, that's very correct. I was at a, a meeting in the fabulous um, uh, capital city of Montana, Helena, and was in a hotel that I'd never really had problems in internet before. Not only did my internet go out, I was having incredible cell phone problems, which, uh, you know, I, I will admit I can't remember the last time I didn't have internet access um, not by choice. So, um, yes, I'm glad to be back at home where I have a confirmed 60 megabits down and multiple means to get onto the interwebs. So it's great to be connected back into the world. And for the record, uh, I had configured Soundflower, which is a free mm-hmm. audio thing for the Mac, uh, along with Skype. So in a pinch, I think we we will be able to to do a call in if, awesome. if that happens. But anyway, it yep. was... Uh, we, the show went on, so it was good. <laughs> Ill-fated, you might say. So, uh, well, a lot of interesting things in the news week this week. Let's jump right in. Um, you would like to talk about ransomware, Wes? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the threat of ransomware? I would. So, um, I have have uh, am down here visiting uh, with some technology directors, and you know, security seminars can can begin really freak you out. I mean, this is part of how we motivate people today, right? By fear. But <clears throat> there's a number of articles that have come out in the last couple months about ransomware. Uh, some very prominent hospitals talked about paying the ransom. I think it was Presbyterian something hospital, East, I don't know, the East Coast or West Coast. I don't, I don't know. But there's a lot more going on that people don't talk about because of stock prices and just embarrassment issues. Um, you know, what we're seeing is folks figuring out uh, how to make a lot of money um, in in some cases by asking individuals to pay small, relatively smaller amounts, like half a Bitcoin, a Bitcoin somewhere around $450, something like that. So a few hundred dollars. What, what happens and what's actually happened to several schools for folks that I visited with um, is that a, a, a user has clicked on an attachment uh, in, in, in some cases, it, it's garbled, but it says, please enable macros in order to read this file. And then what that actually does is execute malicious code, which literally in like three seconds, according to some of the articles that, that I put in the links, uh, spreads on your enterprise network and locks files in virtually every share that is set up in the network. Now, one of the good news is, which is not in the articles, but was a story, uh, is that Microsoft 365, which I'm not saying I'm an advocate for, this is a story about it, uh, gives you 14 days. And if you call in in that window of time, they were actually able to restore this user's full, you know, synced drive because their drive that's synced in the cloud got encrypted just like the local or, well, it's in the cloud, whatever. I don't know. The one, I guess, on their hard drive, they had a, they had a local, you know, synced version. Anyway, they were able to sync it to one minute before the, the, the ransomware hit. And so that was, that was a victory. And, and I've heard some good stories, but the main one is back up your stuff, have a solid backup plan. Uh, we do need to try and educate users about the, the risks because, I mean, I, I had a, a teacher this last week who had something at home off Facebook. She clicked on it, flashed and said, you need to call, da, da, da. And it really freaked her out and she turned her machine off. Of course, it was just, just, you know, malware. 
But uh, turning off ad blocking, running some things like NoScript in, in Firefox, or I think maybe you can do that in Chrome as well. There are some things to do, um, but it's just it's it's a serious issue that is affecting a lot of corporate users. And, you know, we need to be talking about an education. Of course, here we are. We're educators. Right. So, you know, educating not only our teachers, but our students, our families. Uh, these are issues that folks are going to run into. And we're just going to see more of this in the years ahead because there's going to be, frankly, more incentive for uh, cyber criminals to, you know, try and, and make a living. Right. right. Well, well, I can tell you, I can tell you, well, I'm getting well, a wicked, wicked um, um, uh, feedback. Oh, you are? Oh, shoot. Okay. Shoot. Uh, let me see if I can mute. <laughs> Crap. I don't see where my mute is. Testing, testing. It's lesser now. Maybe it's being loud. Let me call. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna exit and then come back. Okay. All right. Hello. Yep. Are we okay? Better. Yeah, it sounds better. Yeah. Um. So the um. Over the last four weeks, this is a, a topic that's come into fruition in my day job. I'm, uh, by the way, the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school in fabulous Big Sky Country. And the uh, the issue was that we received two emails, and it doesn't really matter where they're from because the, the answer is, is that a lot of users are tricked by these emails. But it was someone in a school that we work with and then someone in an advocacy organization in the state of Montana that we work with that was feigning to be a Google Doc that was shared back with the user. And it was an excellent uh, recreation of what that looks like. And, you know, of course, the, the, the social engineering that goes on here, and I have another link in, in, in our show notes tonight about um, another way that people are, are, are taking advantage of folks, but um, the, the, the social engineering that goes on is, is really quite well thought out and crafty. And when you, um, you know, receive anything that you don't know about, that's, I mean, that's, that's, you know, message number one that you need to be, you know, savvy about not clicking on that. And it just so happened in this particular case that the, the group we work with immediately sent out an email letting folks know not to click on that, that email. Um, the, the, uh, employee of the school district, um, um, I was able to contact the IT director in that district and let them know, and they immediately acted on the issue. Um, but, you know, it's not um, unusual now for someone, especially if you, you live in email or you have a prominent email account, if you're a school administrator or perhaps a teacher that communicates a lot with parents via email, that you're going to be a target of this simply because you're in people's um, uh, uh, email directories, which means that if they get hacked, you essentially then become the next target to hacking. And what I keep thinking about in regards to all the security issues which are, are coming to head is that um, it, it goes back to the notion that we have to be really careful when we suggest that it's not or uh, that the teachers don't have to be tech savvy, right? That somehow we can rely on students only um, to to be able to guide technology in the classroom. And, and there's really twofold reason for this in, in, in this particular case. The first one is that I know as many students that get hacked as I do adults. And part of the, my perspective here is that as uh, someone that works in a state virtual school, my email relationship with students is extensive. I mean, that's, that's mostly my communication mechanism. And I get hacked um, uh, messages all the time from clearly hacked email addresses that are sending out mass emails with links to click on, whether it's clickbait or, you know, herbal Viagra, which is the catch-all for the bad advertising that gets sent in this way. And then, of course, more scammy 
uh, emails that either have an attached virus to it or some kind of, of malware script that can then take over your computer. But the second piece of this is, is that, you know, teachers really do need to be good models in, in this process and understanding this and, and not necessarily even, you know, knowing or being able to tell a difference between something real and something not real, but being able to be careful enough to bring in an expert to help you when those situations occur, I think is, is a core competency that we shouldn't be afraid to ask of teachers and we shouldn't excuse teachers from um, because of the, the notion that somehow they're, they're incapable of learning the, the, these pieces of technology. But I couldn't agree more that this is a real issue. I, I couldn't agree more. That this is a, a, something we should be at the forefront of, of educational thinking in this regard. And then, um, uh, you know, we, we have to take action. I mean, we have to be, you know, hyper vigilant about these situations. Um, I would add to that, that I had another article in the show notes tonight about how, um, and there's been a lot of studies related to this. The first one that and I tried to find a, a copy of it earlier, but this four or five years ago, there was an excellent study where um, a, a security researcher spread around um, flash drives in the parking lot of a credit union. And um, like 60% of the flash drives were ultimately plugged in to an employee's computer inside the credit union. And, uh, you know, the point during that time was that, you know, uh, Flash drives can contain malware, but the article I, I posted related to this was from um, a register that said that uh, half of all people plug in USB drives they find in a parking lot. And there's two ways that a USB drive can compromise what you're doing. First, obviously, it can contain executable malware that can do the same things that something that may spread by email will do, but in some cases be more trusted than something that was downloaded from the internet because it's something that you're, it's executing itself on your local computer. But also, um, and this was uh, a bit overblown when the threats went out about this a, a few years ago, but there's actually, you know, programmable malware in the actual USB interface that can also be a threat to your computer. And that's why as, for example, as a teacher, this, as paranoid as this sounds, I don't think I would plug in even a student's um, USB drive into my personal teacher computer. I mean, I have a lab computer is a different situation. They're oftentimes more locked down. They're, you're not uh, logged in as an administrator to the computer. But I think, you know, being cautious about that is extremely important. And don't plug in flash drives you find in a parking lot. Um, because no matter what the scenario is, um, it's it's not a good idea. You know, I could see a scenario where maybe you are trying to find the owner and you're trying to do what's right, or maybe you're just curious, but you know, that kind of social engineering hack is really um, you know, a good percentage of the problem. It's not just folks that are gonna try to sneak their way in via your email or via some kind of malware. It could also be something, you know, um, you know way more simplistic. Um, and then, of course, that ignores the fact that some people are willing to give passwords out over the telephone or, you know, fall to social engineering tricks that are becoming much more prevalent into homes. Um, if you ever receive a phone call from Microsoft, I put in quotation marks, saying that, that there's malware on your computer and they want to help you fix it, just, just hang up the phone. Um, and I will tell you, we now get eh, two to three calls a month in my offices asking uh, for individual end users in our organization, um, uh, claiming to be the IT department uh, to help fix individual pieces. And of course, we're a small enough office and people just know to send them to me so I can mock them um, for, for 10 or 15 minutes and waste their time. But, um, you know, that that's those are real issues that we have to be extremely aware of as we use these technologies.
Well, I dropped two more links into uh, that that area of our show notes, which, by the way, if you are watching us live or after the fact, um, edtechsr.com slash links is where you can get to all of our show notes. Um, there are several different companies now that will let you test your user base to basically put out some false, you know, messages, and then it will give you the exact metrics on who clicked and, and what. So this may be something that you put out and then you wait a couple weeks. And, you know, some schools are doing this to, to have some individual counseling with people. Um, but basically it's testing to see who is going to click on stuff. And hopefully none of us are going to be targets. Hopefully none of us are going to anger people that either are hackers or want to hire hackers to, you know, attack our schools or our, or attack us. But just, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that about the Google drive because these, these things are being done, you know, knowing that an, an organization is using Google apps and, and even the timing of some of these things people are talking about. I mean, they're being sophisticated. And so, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why people are doing this. Uh, yes, there is such a thing as the zombie botnet, and <laughs> you know, people think this is crazy, but you know, hackers have control over these vast armies of computers that are attached to the internet now via high-speed connections, and basically, they're able to push a button and then have those computers, you know, ping or send. Uh, requests out and, and, and things like denial of service attacks get launched and crazy stuff. So I would refer people to the Security Now podcast with Steve. Yeah. I learned just a ton about security, the basics of TCP IP and, and a lot of things. Uh, that's part of the Twit uh, This Week in Tech network. Um, but, you know, it's we. We can, I don't know. I remember when, when Y2K was happening and, and my grandmother, bless her heart, who's, who's passed away, she would call it KY2. She'd stay up late listening to Art Bell and, you know, she would get so fired up about, you know, KY2 is going to take us down and we got to, you know, we got to get ready for it. I mean, and there were, there were issues that were, you know, many of them were dealt with, but I don't think this is hyperbole because I've talked with tech directors <laughs> this week, you know, who have had to actually deal with this in the last, you know, month or two months. And, uh, you know, we've got hospitals and other things that are doing it. So like other digital citizenship topics, this isn't something we can do once and we're done. I think all of us as organizations need to be trickling out information about digital citizenship. It covers a whole range of issues, but definitely includes Internet safety and security. And, you know, we're um, our, our headmasters just asked us actually to develop a three year strategic plan for digital citizenship. We brought a speaker, Carl Hooker, in to, you know, talk to parents and kids a couple weeks ago, which is successful. But, you know, that one event doesn't mean ah, we, we've all got it. We're all set. And I'm I'm going to this next week actually be making a video and sending this out to our teachers again, not because I think this is going to prevent all these issues, but because it's part of our obligation as a, as a, a technology department in a school. And so uh, we're not, I don't think we're going to pay $3,000 to be, you know, sending false messages to, to our users at this point, but we are going to be, you know, trying to, to actively communicate and, and, and also test our own backups to hopefully, and, and then reduce the shares. You know, if we've got unneeded, you know, shares and the migration to the cloud, right? The more people are on, on Google docs, we're not a, a Microsoft 365 shop, but um, we read some stuff on Sophos today that was very positive about Google assisting, you know, in the restoration of files and stuff like that that are up there too. So a lot of, a lot of things to think about. So, Wes, so Wes uh, uh, to bring us more interpersonally, 
but what, uh, what would be your top suggestion to a personal user on how to, to be more secure when they're utilizing the internet? Okay, well, I mean, there's a there's a password security layer to this. We were just talking about how best practices are no longer, you know, just using uh, an eight or twelve character uh, word, you know, or series of characters. It's really using a passphrase and the number of digits is the key. So if you can use a twenty five character passphrase, um, I do think people should be using some kind of password manager like One Pass or uh, what's the other one? There's one that Last I LastPass. Yeah, there's LastPass, and then. Uh, there's, I mean, ha- having having a secure place to to put your passwords. Insecure is another one. Yep. Um, so though, I would say turn on two factor authentication. We had that conversation today that in the Google Apps domain you can turn on. And if you're not familiar with it, two two factor means I log into my Google account and then I get a text message or I use the Google Authenticator app. And I and it's just like uh, when you have an RSID actual device that generates a number, it's a it's a second layer of verification that it's you. You know, I have I have had, I've seen, you know, the messages, somebody from China tried to, you know, connect to your account. Someone from India tried to connect to your account. It prevents people from connecting to your Google account. When you think about all the things that are attached to your identity, it's important. So turn on two-factor on your Apple ID, turn it on with your Google account. Uh, we may at school uh, turn that on as an option and then, you know, be educating our, our users. It's a, it's another layer. We were talking about it. The help desk and, and whatever was going to take a hit with people calling in with issues. But I think two-factor authentication is a best practice. I'm, yep. I've got it turned on in, on as many things as I can. Uh, my family does too. You know, all my kids, my wife, they've got two-factor turned on. And then I would say the other part of this has got to be a solid backup strategy. You know, ideally, if you're using Macs, you can have a time capsule set up so that every time you open up your machine at home, it just does an incremental backup. You don't have to sit there and plug something in uh, and even think about it. But you do have to initiate the time machine setup and, and you need to verify, you know, that that's happening. Um, and thankfully, Mac users are much less susceptible than Windows users. So, hey, there's a there's a step. Run Google Chrome, run Mac OS, you know, right. don't run Windows. But obviously, that's not a, a choice for the enterprise. But um, I think the only case I've read about a Mac um, ransomware so far was a BitTorrent client. So, you know, if, if you if you have kids downloading movies on BitTorrent at your house, and this is another possible vector for these things, right? People are doing stuff at home, bringing their device to school. Um, it's another reason, actually, not to give folks at your organization, at your school, access to your physical network. Just right. let them authenticate with their app, like their active directory or their Google credentials, and then access the internet, but not map to drives and actually, you know, connect on the same IP range as the, as the rest of your computers. So there's, there's multiple things to think about on the enterprise and the individual level, but certainly password security and backups are worth right. starting. And I would add a, another thought to that related to mobile devices. If you don't have a, a pin code or a pattern code or, um, a touch ID set up on your device that you should go do that now. In fact, you're wasting time listening to us. Shut us off and go and, and do that because I mean, phones are obviously quite mobile and they're sitting in your pocket. Um, but if you uh, lose that device and you don't have a passcode and you effectively opened up your entire, um, your, your entire digital life to do that. And the same is true of laptops. If you're using a personal laptop and for convenience purposes, you decided to not set up a password on that. Now is the time to do that. And, and I would say that, you know, talking about again, good modeling inside of a classroom, if you're in a, a BYOD environment where you have students bringing their own devices from home, 
you know, doing a five minute security check with students. Um, and you can take cues here from, I know at the very least, um, Google does this. I believe Microsoft does it too, but there's kind of security weeks once a year where Google will start touting. Here's some good things you should be doing right now related to that. Passing that on to your students is a really important strategy. Um, for, for helping this problem. And, and honestly, I don't think we've ever seen the kind of kind of technopocalypse that could happen, at least yet, if there's a wide breach in, in a, in a, in a major way. I know that identity theft is, is extremely common and getting more common. I know that, uh, obviously the, the bit locker problem where your files get locked. And it's, it's, what's interesting about that story from earlier is that, the thieves have gotten more clever that they're just asking for small amounts of money now because they know they're more likely to get paid than asking for huge amounts of money um, where that might increase, you know, uh, the, the opportunity to catch these folks as opposed to, um, you know, pay the ransom. But if you're asking for a paltry, you know, ten fifteen thousand $15,000 as opposed to, you know, $1 million, then that creates a much better um, chance of, of getting paid out. And these, uh, situ or these strategies are getting more clever. I think it's very much, um, you know, a part of the process. Last thing to tag on to that is, um, I'm going to forget what I just was going to say. Uh, something very provocative. Oh, it's a preview for my uh, Geek of the Week. Um, the countries with the most powerful cyber weapons today, and I'm going to quote uh, Alec Ross, who I'm going to talk about in my Geek of the Week, do not really have the financial incentive today to take down financial markets, okay? But he talked in this show that I listened to on, on World Affairs about how when, when, when Russia and Putin, you know, went into the Ukraine and they're kind of withdrawing, like if China or Russia really get more inward looking and are not as tied to the global market, they're going to have less to lose by taking down the New York Stock Exchange. And so... I'm not wanting to be over the top scary, but there are things that we need to do personally. I mean, we can't, I'm not saying we can, pre, we can prepare for that, but I, but I am saying, you know, these risks are real. They're developing. And here's another connection because, hey, in the ed tech situation room, we, we talk about the educational implications of news. We've got to be having STEM programs. We've got to be having cybersecurity programs. You know, I, uh, I think it was the same podcast. He said, Pretty much every board today, if you look at a, a board of a, of a corporation or a nonprofit, they do not do due diligence if they don't have someone on their board who is an accountant, an auditor, somebody with a background as a CFO. I mean, you just got to do that, right? He's, this guy said the same thing is going to be true for cyber. If you don't have people who are knowledgeable about cyber defense and security and these issues, you're not going to be doing due diligence. So this is a really big opportunity in, in the, in the data driven service industry. We know workforce of today and tomorrow. Uh, our schools need to be oriented towards this and helping encourage kids. You know, you're not going to get a cyber degree, but you certainly could develop skills and interest and awareness about that, that job pathway. And anyway, that ties to this as well, because it, the, these things are just going to get bigger in the years to come. Okay, excellent. So moving on, um, Microsoft uh, a few weeks ago um, announced the availability of their bot experiment. And it so happens that the month of April seems to turn into bot month, because not only did Microsoft announce that and make an open available bot that they quickly shut down, as we'll talk about in a moment, uh, Facebook earlier this week, as part of their F8 conference, um, announced that they are opening up a platform 
um, related specifically to commerce and bots to try to do transactions back and forth. And um, for those of you that have not caught the story, uh, Microsoft uh, opened up their uh, Twitter bot named Tay. So Microsoft Tay and uh, Tay and you was the Twitter handle. And if you go there now, and the link is in our show notes, you'll notice that that, that uh, her tweets are protected. And one of the reasons why is that less than 24 hours after Tay um, uh, exploded onto the Internet, she became a uh, xenophobic, racist, um, anti-feminist, uh, um, I guess, spewer of, 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 of rhetoric. And part of part of the, the, the deeper story here is that Tay was programmed um, to, in essence, provide, uh, uh, you know, text based on what she was being told. And so, you know, a bunch of trolls from the interwebs, um, you know, decided to uh, spew, um, you know, we won't talk about the presidential candidates that, that may be using similar rhetoric, but spew um, pretty aggressive rhetoric um, into her Twitter stream, which she then turned around and became pretty offensive pretty quickly. And then um, after taking it down for a while and trying again, take it down a while and trying it again, they eventually just turned off the Twitter uh, uh a place. And then, of course, Facebook's news was that, and their sample was 1-800-Flowers. Mark Zuckerberg said actually something very insightful. No one wants to order anything on the telephone, and he's correct about that. And so they're offering um, a, a, a chat, essentially a chat bot for things like 1-800-Flowers. Now, the irony of 1-800-Flowers you know, not being at 1-800-Flowers, but rather on Facebook somewhere is, is, is pretty rich. But um, there is a, a, a you know interfaces available now where chatbots are are making a comeback. So so two questions related to this. The first one is that um, I thought we've been through this before. Like it seems like we've had chatbots available for well, basically the last um, at least twenty five years. And although you know none of them ended up taking up uh, uh, you know xenophobic rhetoric and um, spewing it out on Twitter, it seems like the technology hasn't evolved that much since things like Smarter Child and other experiments of, 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 of decades past have been in place. So I guess the open question is why now and what, wh why this movement? Uh, any thoughts about the uh, bot movement, Wes? I think we're seeing continued exploration of AI and its possibilities for what it can do, you know, technologies that can learn. Um, I'm sure that DARPA and our military and the classified, um, you know, reaches of uh, White Sands, New Mexico and Tonopod, Nevada, you know, have some, some very amazing AI. We're not yet seeing at the consumer level, you know, this real, wow, I'm amazed it can do that. You know, Siri and Google Now and these things are are getting better. Um, but I think it's the continued exploration of what AI is going to do. And, um, you know, we're not we haven't reached the tipping point of that yet. But uh, we're also I don't know. I mean, when it comes to when it comes to Microsoft, as well as Facebook and social, you know, companies are wanting to engage consumers and they're wanting to basically explore, you know, anything that's going to be the next trend, whether that's VR or chatbots or um you know, uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever else. I mean, Snapchat, you know, mess messaging that's going to disappear and, you know, what, what is going to be the next next thing? So, I don't know, we're, con we're continuing to see those as, as consumer um, companies are, are pushing. And, and I guess, um, you know, 
we've we've uh, we've hashed out, hashed over some of these things before as far as you are the product and you know being right. aware of the things that you're giving away with right. with privacy um you know i i guess i would take it to a stem level too and say you know how how are we in our in our schools exploring ai you know talking about how we can be coding these algorithms uh again i i think i don't know i've i've listened to a bunch of stuff this week but i think it might have been Alec Ross somebody was saying it's it's almost some people almost take on faith these algorithms that are in the wind like Google you know you're being nudged and pushed towards specific products and towards specific things and and Amazon recommendations all of these things we we really need kids we need adults to be critical thinkers to not just be consumers to recognize the algorithms are being written you know and at some point to have some agency in being able to uh, write some of their own algorithms and sort of not just be the 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 manipulated sheep of the digital ether, you know, unaware right. that these, these things are, are being coded by people for specific right. reasons. Well, and then I would, then the second question, I think this inspires, and, and I have a quick thought about this, um, and then I'll throw it over to you, Wes, but you know, I, there's, there's some impact on schools here. And, and at some point, I think the, the, the notion of a chatbot becomes an interesting, um, uh, uh, classroom something, right? And you'd mentioned before Siri and Google Now and Cortana and all the personal digital one-on-one um, -on -one assistance, which is the topic of my dissertation research uh, that I'm working on right now at the University of Montana as part of my doctoral program. Um, but that, I mean, that is inspiring. And part of what I'd like to, to see in a classroom is, is to see if that's empowering. So, you know, the conversation a student may have with Siri, maybe just to find facts or maybe just to hone an idea, that also becomes the same, uh, you know, potential purpose of a chatbot. Like if a chatbot can learn from a student, can pick up from a student, but more importantly, provide a bit of quick authority to a student to answer a question, to um, perhaps consider some metacognition, um, about a way a student thinks or approaches a problem, that becomes a very interesting prospect then as it relates to, to technology in, inside the classroom environment. And so, um, you know, obviously there's, there's managerial ways the chatbots could be useful. Um, you, know, you can imagine for a moment the Facebook phenomenon where, you know, a parent wants to know what school lunch is on Thursday. And instead of, you know, searching on a web page, they ask the school bot what, what is for hot lunch on Thursday. That is an obviously uh, quite useful um, phenomenon. But there may be a way as these bots start to become smarter, you know, without you know, introducing the risk of, of the Terminator when, as they start to evolve a bit, they could become a useful, um, tool for, um, there we go. Stash has made an appearance tonight. Um, the, uh, the, that it could become a useful, um, tool directly to students that are, you know, maybe could be provided some, some factual information or, um, other bits that, that could be useful in the learning process. Well, Alec Ross, who I'm just going to continue to quote all, all podcast, um, talks about how the industrial age, you know, replaced labor that was basically, uh, repetitive and, you know, routine. But what's going to start happening? And I think this is going to happen in our lifetimes in the next 10 to 20 years. Hopefully our lifetimes are a lot longer than that. Uh, depending on what I continue to eat, I guess, every night, uh, and whether I exercise. They're going to start doing cognitive tasks. So they're going to start doing things that algorithms, you know, that, that require analysis and that, you know, are beyond, you know, even robotics and surgery. This is a trend now. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, some of that is kind of cutting edge stuff. And I'm not seeing I don't know, you know 
how, for instance, the uh, Amazon, what is Amazon's deal called that you talk to? Uh, in, oh, you know? the, uh, I was just talking about this today. It's the Amazon um, Alexa. Alexa. Okay, there you go. So, you know, I think it's kind of a party trick, you know, a parlor trick or whatever it is. Oh, I don't know. That's kind of how I perceive it. Like it's not, it's not doing serious work yet. But I think we're on the edge and the cusp of being able to do some significant things. And this, I think this is going to get creepy faster than we realize, you know, where we're going to, I mean, it's, it already is a little creepy. One of our teachers has a Subaru Forester and it connects to her iPhone and, you know, it, it knows that she's going to drive to her mom's house and it'll tell her when she hasn't put it in. Oh, the, 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 the you know, the traffic is great for da 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 or, you know, it, it, it knows. And <laughs> she's like freaked out. By that. So, yeah, there's that there. This is coming and. Um, some of it is we're, we're along for the ride, you know, right. this is going to be done on a consumer level, um, and it's going to be happening around us. And, um, I don't know, it's, we, I, I'm not being scared by it yet. I don't, I don't know. Um, but so what, what, do you know anyone with the Amazon gear? I mean, I, like I, I, it seems like all the kind of big podcast nerds have, have all used and, and many of them like the product. I mean, there've been a lot of products like this in the past, but the the Amazon product seems to be you know capturing the imagination of folks in different ways. But I don't know anyone that's that's purchased this item. No, I've just heard people like a Clockwise podcast was one I was listening to. They yep. were talking about it. So I no nobody nobody personally. And you know, and of course, it becomes a lot more interesting when you're not using that platform just to order crap on Amazon. And you know, you mentioned the word diapers, and then a big box shows up three days later. Like, and and I get the the utility of that. And as you know, a an Amazon. Um, devotee, um, addict, I mean, however you want to put that, um, you know, like that, that's somewhat attractive to me. Um, but where it becomes even more interesting is when you start hooking it up to everything else in your house, right? Like as the internet of things becomes more of a reality and as, uh, these products start to talk a similar language, so you can pick up any internet connected device and suddenly is kind of in your, your home ecosystem. That's interesting, but I still don't know what the magic of Alexa is, um, that, that that has everyone you know calling this the the kind of the, the platform that will bring this to homes. The vi- the vision Alec Ross talks about for AI, and I haven't I just started listening to his book too. I, I listened to this hour long podcast. You know AI is going to reside in the cloud. It is yeah. it's kind of like the the um, the dumb terminal sort of thing. You know you're going to have this interface, but the power is is going to be in the cloud that you know is going to query it and it's going to it's going to send it back. You know, as these things affect our workflows, as as it filters information and provides useful things immediately at the point. Some people are doing that in their kitchens. You know, they were talking about that on Clockwise as far as, I don't know, doing conversions or looking up a recipe. You've got an interesting, you know, <laughs> analog uh, barrier there to, to, to contend with. <laughs> um, you know, Apple TV in their latest update just allows you to now not only, you know, search for things, but you can dictate, you know, your password. And, you know, you don't want to do that in the classroom when there's kids there. Uh, but that is actually handier. I mean, it's, they're, they're still dealing with that, that interface. But anyway, as this affects workflows, and we're, we've seen this happen pretty rapidly with apps, right? The workflow of being able to shoot and edit a video and put it on YouTube from my phone, from my iPad, that's, that's radically different. And so, these AI technologies, I think, are going to be affecting workflows, especially as far as how information is there, and then it becomes accessible to me at my point of need. So, anyway, I think you know maybe the kitchen is the place to be exploring that kind of stuff with recipes. I'm I'm not sure, but if anybody who's listening to this or you know um, 
you know, wants to tweak that out or whatever, it, it would be kind of interesting to see what people are doing with that. But I think <clears throat> that's an example of really sort of cutting edge, bleeding edge stuff. It, it's, it's, it's not mainstream and it still remains to be seen when that's going to go mainstream and, sure. and be something that people are like, yeah, of course I use that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you want to pick the next one, Wes? Or not? Sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip down to uh, – I'll, I'll skip down to this dark web volunteer one. This was a, an NPR piece from uh, April 4th, and the title was When a Dark Web Volunteer Gets Raided by the Police, uh, which is a little bit of a misnomer because basically there's a guy who is an advocate for Tor who is running a Tor relay at his house, and something – passed his through his network and the police, you know, knocked on his door and, you know, wanted to, to seize his equipment. Uh, I, why is this important? Okay. What is Tor? You know, Tor is a project that allows for anonymous surfing of the internet and the dark web and things that people are doing that are illicit, you know, definitely can happen in that sort of an anonymous environment. And probably most schools, you know, have Tor blocked and are not allowing kids to anonymously surf the web. This is important, though, globally because of freedom of expression and totalitarian states, which hopefully we won't be electing a, a fascist president here in the United States. But um, <clears throat> I don't think we will. But, uh, you know, look at Egypt, look at Kuwait, um, look at Qatar uh, to a, I mean, the, I'm mentioning several different Middle Eastern states. Um you know, different countries that are not supportive of freedom, uh, you know, will crack down on journalists or even, you know, someone who's not a journalist, but an individual who's espousing, a, uh, you know, ideas that they don't like and especially organizing, having been to China four times since 2007 and, you know, contending with the firewall of China and what do they block and what do they watch? I mean, a lot of what they watch are people who are organizers who are going to bring people together. I mean, the, <clears throat> the government of, of China evidently is very concerned about flash mobs, you know, the ability to use social media to have people show up at a spot, you know, and then do a protest or something. So anyway, this was interesting. It was a, a, a case of overreach by local police. Um, there are some cases of local libraries that are, you know, running tour relays and wanting to support this. Uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, is, you know, one of the groups that's a, that's an advocate in this area. Um, you know, it's Tor is one of those things to be aware of, for parents to be aware of. There's a lot of ways for kids to surf and, and to do things with proxies and, you know, even just incognito uh, modes, you know, on browsers and stuff like that. Uh, and not just kids, adults too. Um, yeah. But anyway, I thought that was a that was an interesting article. And, and it, um, you know, just it, Tor is something that is probably not in the lexicon of most most adults today, uh, maybe not kids too. And, um, there's a human rights element to that that's really important. And it's, it, it's why we don't want Tor to go away because we want them to still be dissidents who can express their views, you know, in countries where, you know, freedom of expression is not permitted. Right. Well, this issue certainly strikes a, a number of tensions that I think keep appearing in headlines in mainstream news. Uh, Apple iPhone unlocking case and the notion of encryption. You mentioned the, the Tor network and the Tor router, um, and that only works because of volunteers. I mean, that's not a commercial service. People have to sign up to, to, to be the outlet of the Internet for the Tor network, which means that you collectively all share that traffic, whether they're surfing naughty.com or they're 
um, you know, engaging in legitimate political protests. It doesn't matter. It's the, the, that traffic's all treated the same. Or the other one that I've heard of late that, that I have never seen as a tension, but apparently there is, there is a perception by some that those that use VPN networks or virtual private networks, which are services that allow you to create a safe tunnel in the internet to get around things like sketchy Wi-Fi or uh, bad public access, or even have an employer sniff out your traffic, which you know could arguably they're right on their network. But um, I've been subscribing to a VPN service for three or four years now when I had started reading about how public Wi-Fi, and I'm a notorious coffee shop user um, uh, for work um, related to both my day job and I mean, side projects. I love I love surfing the net and doing work in a coffee shop, but this the Wi-Fi is always wickedly sketchy. So I've been using a VPN service for years, not to get around any grand you know, Netflix firewall or to uh, you know uh, pirate or torrent, or I just want a safe place to get on the internet where my both my my action won't be tracked and, and my my tri- my packets won't be sniffed. And I think there is a, a grand tension here that does go on. Um, with all these tools, that there is certainly a, an argument that these tools can be used by those with nefarious goals um, to to do bad and naughty things. But at the same time, um, you know, the world has changed in that the footprint that you leave. I'm not talking about the, the broad public footprint you leave, but the many uh, bits that that follow you around, um, whether it's to engage in legitimate uh, uh, a speech, uh, I, all speeches, you're technically legitimate, I guess. So I don't want to come off as, as that guy, but, um, you know, that, that your speech is protected. It's, it's not just protected speech. It's, it's, um, you know, everything you may do that you want some context to privacy. And I think that's a tension that, um, you know, it's interesting to have an IT director in the room when we have this conversation, because I imagine that, that you would like to keep an, a close eye on how your network gets used as well. And if a student uses a VPN inside your network, it does you know, create some issues. So I think these are all tensions that will continue to become headlines um, in the United States. And I'll just say one more thing about this. We should be absolutely passionate about the exercise of our Bill of Rights freedoms, right? Because these are not universal. I mean, we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but we've got plenty of folks saying either because of religious differences or because of just cultural differences, oh, no, that doesn't apply. I mean, we have presidential candidates also calling for torture. I mean, we've got people calling for all kinds of stuff. As educators, as uh, folks who help shape the civic mindedness of students think about, you know, rights and responsibilities of being a citizen. You know, we should absolutely be advocates for freedom of expression, for for journalistic freedom, uh, for the ability of, of folks who disagree to, you know, air those dis- those uh, those con- contrary opinions. And so anyway, it's it's important because public policy is being shaped and and we don't want people on the subject of encryption or the subject of freedom of expression to just say, yeah, you know, I mean, the, the idea that, oh, if you don't have anything to hide, you know, you, you don't need to have any privacy rights or the idea that, you know, yeah, that person's a terrorist. So the state should have unlimited access to do anything they want with anybody's stuff. You know, our founding fathers would not agree. And we need to basically take some of those values in, into the 21st century and, and help explain to our kids what, you know, what is at stake here? Uh, because these are, uh, you know, laws and, and the Constitution and, and things that, you know, 
people have to agree on and have to support and, and have to fight to defend. And I'm not talking about fighting with bullets necessarily. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, fighting with our words. So because it's important and this stuff is under siege. And ultimately, we could end up with a very fractured Internet if we, you know, if, if different trends, you know, continue to play out as far as nations saying, oh, you can't have your data here. Oh, you can't, you know, right. we're going to outlaw VPNs and, 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 you know, there's some, there's some things that are happening that yep. we need to be fighting for internet freedom and net neutrality and, and open access because there are some, some really important things that are happening and continue to happen because of open access to ideas. Uh, but there's not a, there's not a guarantee that those things are going to, there's, there's plenty of countries that would like to see the internet as it is now kind of end. So. Anyway. Yep, absolutely. All right. What's your next article? So uh, the uh, probably our last one here looks like our our time is time is going quickly. Um, this was announced two weeks ago, but it was kind of doubled down uh, this week at the Facebook F8 conference. But Facebook now allows um, live streaming video from um, mobile devices, desktop devices to your followers or the public via Facebook. And obviously this, you know, is not the first time there's been a live video tool available to mobile phones. There have been things that have plugged into Twitter that have been, you know, effective, interesting pieces over the last two years. Um, uh, Ustream.tv has been around for uh, you know, almost 10 years now. Um, it was initially a, a less commercial product available to masses. So none of this is new. The reason why that, that, that I thought this was so interesting is how Facebook has pivoted to become the core platform for publishing, whereas 10 years ago, people were blocking Facebook. Facebook was the end of privacy. Facebook was the end of, it was, you know, providing all sorts of opportunities for, for, for kids to misbehave on the internet. And yet the tool has managed to evolve to become the core platform for um, media, traditional media to publish video, for um, uh, uh, journalism outlets to, to publish written works. It is becoming a platform that you, you don't have to leave to be able to, um, you know, kind of engage with the world. And in a world where, you know, previously Facebook was blocked in almost every school, on uh, K-12, suddenly now there's going to be uh, probably content in the very near future that's only available on Facebook. Um, it's become a, a core platform for the delivery of media. Um, and I, I, I find it wildly fascinating that, you know, everyone's been estimating the demise of Facebook for, um, you know, actually, uh, since it opened the public, uh, there was a lot of college kids that thought it was the end of, of days when um, Facebook no longer required a .edu uh, email account to, to get onto the service. But even despite that, um, you know, there have been uh, uh, numerous times where Facebook has, has so-called jumped the shark. It's it's near its end, and yet it's resilient. It is by far the most dominant platform for social media. It is by far the most dominant platform for sheer number of minutes spent um, on, on, on the internet. And now it offers the opportunity for anyone to publish video, um, from their smartphone. So, um, Wes, I know you're a Facebook user. We're, we're friends there. Uh, it's not really where we interact. I think we interact much, much more on Twitter than we do on Facebook. But, um, let me ask this question. Is Facebook blocked in your district? Uh, no, it is, uh, we're pretty open at our school, uh, guest network wise, YouTube right now is completely restricted. Eventually I want a quota that and not have it blocked entirely. Yeah. And, uh, iTunes updates, you know, are, are blocked from a bandwidth standpoint. We need to get our, our update server running. Um, and those were inherited policies that I didn't set up, yeah. uh, but we just kind of maintained them. So, um, 
you know, I, it's it, it's open, but we're very unique in, in doing that. Yeah. I think the vast majority of our public schools are still blocking both of those. My thought on this is, you know, video is the pencil of the 21st century. We would not think twice about having pencils and pens and paper, except when we're in a, in a juvenile prison situation or, or whatever, you know, when we got to do rubber or something. But in, in most right. situations, you know, that is a default communication uh, mechanism. Uh, video is becoming and should become that same kind of, yeah, of course, I have a place to share video. And while right. I don't know that Facebook is going to become that place, every teacher needs to have you know, a YouTube channel, a Vimeo channel, a, a, a we. I, I don't know if you can host on WeVideo. Video. Um, you know, some schools in East Asia were setting up their own YouTube uh, websites at one point. You know, because they couldn't get to the real YouTube. So it it just this shows the ascendancy and importance of video. Uh, the f- different factors that continue to go with the processing speed. You know, internet connectivity and bandwidth in urban areas, not obviously, and you know, in, in all urban areas or in rural areas. Um, but you know, Facebook's going to continue to fight with, with YouTube and Amazon and Apple for, for market dominance. And, um, uh, this is an area that they've, they've entered into and they're, and, and the folks who continue to innovate and be agile are going to be successful, right? So Facebook isn't sitting back and just saying, Hey guys, we made a, you know, Mark made a great platform when he was at Harvard and it's just, you know, going to continue to ride the waves and be awesome without change. They're, they're going to continue to figure out what they, what they need to do to draw the audience. And hopefully they're not going to, you know, lose folks as, you know, Twitter's kind of risks doing it. Right. Um, I remember that this was seven or eight years ago um, that I was listening to Mike Eisenberg, who is a, a, a professor of library, I think at the university of Washington, I may get that wrong, but he was talking about how he had taught a class and utilized Facebook as um, like he didn't want to bother to use the L- the LMS available to him. And he just said, well, what are you all on? He said, well, we're on Facebook. He said, great, the class is on Facebook. And it was kind of controversial at the time because he set up a Facebook page, he closed it down appropriately and made sure it was, you know, members only and then just conducted the class there. And um, it, Facebook is is a thousand percent more functional now than it was when he tried that um, um uh, that experiment. And I think that it's, it's going to become more and more a platform for, you know, both impromptu and more formal environments to connect. And, and I will tell you, and I, I, I heard, I, I've said this, I've, I've given a lot of, uh, uh trainings to, um, administrators on social media, um, and heard also speakers say the same thing that, you know, in, in 2016, first of all, if your school doesn't have a Facebook page, you've just lost your adult, uh, your ability to, to contact adults. That's where adults are at. They ignore the kids for a second. That's where adults are at. But the second thing is, is that it's as important in, in 2016 to have a presence in Facebook because people will look for you there, right? Like, even if it's not, you know, your personal presence, even if it's not, even if it's somewhat manufactured and, and to be quite frank, I, my Facebook presence is a bit manufactured, uh, because I don't share I mean, I, I try not to be a grouch on Facebook, right? Even when I am grouchy, it's more of a smart comment than it is, you know, being, uh, you know, the oversharing grouch on Facebook. And for those of you that, you know, who you are that do that. But, uh, you know, the, the frank answer is, is that it's, it's, it's becoming the sub internet, right? Like it, it is the place where people go to interact with one another and connect with brands and connect with celebrities and connect with schools, nonprofits and pieces. Go ahead. People choose, though, how they're going to use tools and platforms. And one thing I realized with our digital citizenship discussions and just social media is, you know, students, adults, parents, people don't necessarily make connections that, oh, I can use Twitter for professional networking. 
from sharing ideas. Like when you're immersed in doing it all the time, maybe you just kind of see that world and you think everybody sees it, but, but people don't. My wife had threatened for a number of months to unfriend me on Facebook at the time I was cross-posting my Twitter to Facebook. <laughs> at that point, I ended up saying, well, I'm just going to kind of use Facebook for personal. Yep. People still follow me, I think, thinking they're going to get ed tech stuff. And I still throw some stuff over there, mm-hmm. but I feel more uh, freedom to, for instance, share sketch notes from church and to sure. share my personal side over there. You know, whereas my main Twitter is like, that's going to be pretty much my ed tech. But it's it's weird how things bleed over back and forth. And it's not that we're different people, but we do have different sides. You know, we have a different focus. And a social media platform can can kind of challenge you to decide, you know, what face are you putting forward here? And, um, you know, the whole thing about audience, because who knows who's going to who's going to come to that. So anyway, well, my niece who is 13 years old, it's interesting. She does exactly that. Um, and, and I think it's starting to become something that's become more ingrained in newer users of these technologies. Um, she has a, it seems, well, she's on Snapchat. I have no idea what she does there. She doesn't share anything but goofy stuff with me. Um, and I, I still don't really understand Snapchat to be quite honest. I don't, I don't get the lure of it. My son gave me a tutorial two weekends ago. So we can, we can talk about that one. later. Yeah. Yeah. We should maybe have a Snapchat chat night here at, at, at the situation room, but um, she, she's mostly on Instagram and that's where it seems that most of her interaction is. She has a Facebook account of which she, it seems to be exist only so her dad can tag her in photos, but I know she checks it and I know it's part of her strategy, but she doesn't post anything there. It's, it's, she's a light Facebook user and she told me she doesn't hate Facebook. It's just not, just doesn't you know serve the purposes that Snapchat and Instagram does. And I think that that's starting to become the nuanced way to use these social networks. And it's funny you should mention, Wes, the um, the personal or, or adding your ed tech stuff to your Facebook feed. I never share almost anything related to work other than, you know, selfies uh, from uh, the University of Montana on my Facebook page. But, um, you know, I, I, I had a similar uh, kind of come to uh, uh, um, a Buddha uh uh, process with um, uh, Twitter because I didn't really get Twitter at first. Like I got it, but you know, you go to these demonstrations. And I remember this one where Will Richardson sends out a tweet asking people to say hello, and he gets a hundred responses. Why well, do that? And it's just dead silence because I hadn't made any real connections there yet, right? Um, but I also tried a bunch of things where for a while Twitter was where I dumped everything. So every time I played a new song, I had a script that Last FM ping that song and said, now playing X. And I had people saying, like, I have to unfriend you. This is stupid. Like, I don't really care what song you're currently listening to. Um, and that coming to that that place where each of these tools plugs into your life in a different way is a really important part of this process. And that's where Facebook is, is becomes more interesting to me because there may be a point in the future, not unlike YouTube now hosting its own uh, internally created content of subscribers where, you know, and it would still have to be where you, you can access this on a larger screen, I think, but maybe Facebook becomes the host of, of, of television programming or Facebook becomes where the, um, you know, the ex presidential debate, uh, is it's the primary means of, of delivering that content. And, um, if that's the case, then you probably would use Facebook differently than if it's just to connect with your college friends or just to post awkward selfies. And I think that's a, 
um, you know, that that evolving process is, is quite interesting, especially in light of the fact that, you know, of course, Facebook continues to grow and Twitter is struggling a bit uh, uh, in its growth patterns. And in fact, I, I've, I've seen a number of references to say that where Twitter still remains a dominant force is in education. It's, it's by far the preferred channel to engage with other professional educators. But in a lot of other ways, Twitter isn't meh for folks. So I think that that evolution has been quite, quite fascinating. All right. So we do some geeks of the week. Let's do so. Um, I'll uh, jump in first and then Wes, you can close us out. Um, I'd like to share my favorite app that I install on every Mac or PC computer uh, to better manage windows. This is called Divi. And Divi is available on both Mac and PCs. I would suggest if you buy it on the Mac platform, you actually purchase it on the Mac App Store because that will allow you to install it without purchasing additional licenses um, on, on every Mac that you own. I also own it on, on the PC as well. And one of the things that I like to do, um, and I'm, I'm a big setup guy, like I like to make sure that my tools are set up in a way that helps me be productive and, and efficient. But what, if I'm on large monitors, I like to be able to place windows in a certain location so I can have access to all the information I need um, in an appropriate location. It's especially true if I'm using multiple monitors. But um, And Divi allows you to create a keyboard shortcut. And I set up the same one on all my machines so that it becomes part of my kind of muscle memory. Um, but it allows me to take windows and place them, you know, in a grid that I can place things very exactly. So I have two, well, I, I have an I'm a big iMac at work and a big uh, side monitor. So if I want to you know, have three email accounts up, I can put up three email accounts and strip windows on this, my side monitor and have access to all those pieces at once. That was why I originally purchased the tools to have more direct access to that. But I've also discovered that when I'm on a smaller screen, and right now I'm on an 11, 11 inch laptop, um, it's, it's a smaller experience, it's running windows, it's, um, um, you know, not, it's not as necessary to, you know, necessarily place bigger things around the screen. But over time, I figured out that I can, you know, place four windows with, um, you know, four little corners sticking out to the four sides that allows me to just click on one of those windows as I'm going around the screen and be able to, to without having to go alt tab or go down to the toolbar get between those windows easily. And I found the tool kind of addicting. I think it's $11 uh, to pay for it. And um, when I get on a computer that doesn't have it, I almost immediately miss it because I like to be able to place my windows where it's 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 going to allow me to be mo mo most productive. So Divi, excellent tool, and I, I highly recommend. There's a free trial for it um, on both Windows and, and um, uh, Macs. Um, play around with it, see if it works for you, but I think it's great for window management. That is a true geek of the week. So, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, all these links are available online at edtechsr.com slash links. And mine is actually a book. Um, I was thinking about this, even though, you know, love Twitter and Flipboard and Pocket and all these tools, uh, listening to books now to a greater degree even than reading them. I still do read books, but I listen to them more on Audible uh, is a huge influence on my life, you know, and the ability to, you know, see a link, then listen to a podcast, then connect to a book, which this one is. I mean, this can lead to some really, you know, big learning. So my Geek of the Week is a book called The Industries of the Future by Alec Ross. He is Alec J. Ross on Twitter. Um, I wrote actually a post tonight that I linked to a uh, World Affairs Council uh, interview that, that he did in February. Uh, 
pretty interesting guy. He uh, worked for, I think, about eight years in the Congo, uh, helping deliver you know broadband connectivity. Uh, one of the favorite stories in the podcast, he talks about refugee camps and what a huge difference it makes to have you know cellular phones because you know it's not weeks or months in order to get reconnected to your family. Sometimes it's a matter of hours or days. So I'm going to situate this book, which I've just started to listen to today, with three others. There are three of the most important books I would say have influenced my thinking, especially with regard to the digital economy and the future economy. Number one would be Being Digital by Nicholas Negroponte, who talks about turning things into zeros and ones. And, you know, this is a 20-year-old book probably, but, you know, very uh, prescient, very future-looking as far as, you know, learning and when we when we can encode things. Um Next book and the one that reminds me the most of is The World is Flat by Tom Friedman. You know, I heard about that because Governor Angus King of Maine, you know, I think heard Friedman and, well, he talked to Seymour Papert. But anyway, Friedman and The World is Flat and what happened in, industrial to all the, you know, shoe factories in Maine and all this stuff and how, hey, we need to give laptops to kids and, and retool for the future. The World is Flat is, a, is an important, um, you know, cultural literacy book that, that, talks about globalization and talks about outsourcing and, and changing economics and, and labor markets. The third one would be The Future of Ideas by Larry Lessig, uh, which is a lot about, you know, open sharing, the open Internet. Um, so I can't I, I haven't finished this book yet, but the preview that I have from that podcast about Alec Ross, you know, he we, he worked under uh, we worked for President Obama uh, in his uh, I think his second campaign when he defe they defeated uh, Hillary. And then he worked for Hillary in an innovations uh, place. So he talks about robotics. He's talking about cybersecurity. He's talking about cybernetics, I think, that, or no, genomics. Is that right? Genomics. So we're talking about, you know, tweaking the gene code, you know, the combination between biology and technology. Um, and so he is, he's writing the book that he wishes he could have bought, you know, 20 years ago saying, where are digital technologies and the internet and globalization going to take us as far as our institutions and, and our society? And he's looking forward to the next 20 years. So I, I think it's great stuff. And, you know, he's, it's one of these guys that's like, oh my gosh, this guy is so smart. I want to hang out and listen to him talk more. And hey, there you go. Audible.com. I use one of my credits. So. I would awesome. recommend people check that out. Okay, great. Thanks, Wes. And where can people find you on the Internet? So I am W. Fryer on Twitter, and my blog is speedofcreativity.org. And I continue to tweak my Twitter handle. And if you click a link in, in my Twitter handle, you can now see these somewhat crazy, uh, I think, 12 Twitter channels. I don't I don't update them all. <laughs> team sites. I'm kind of all over the place. I think I need to do a rebel mouse or something, you know, to aggregate, you know, different kinds of content. But yeah, speed of creativity, probably once a week, I'm putting something up. And my, my, my long post I did this last week was about college and this whole journey of, uh, you know, trying to figure out how we're not going to go into mountains of debt as a family with three children, you <laughs> yeah. know, on the, on the edge of college. Yep. Very how about you? Where can we find you um, in the in-residence guru. Right. Um, I, well, I blog at blog.ncc.org, where I'm the tech savvy administrator for the Northwest Council for Computer Education. And um, I'm on Twitter at tech savvy teach. And um, I guess if you find out more about my work, you can go to nifer, N-E-I-F-F-E-R.com, or, of course, um, more about my day, day job, montanadigitalacademy.org. The debate stuff? Do you? Do you I do. Yeah. In fact, I, I might as well plug that here too. Um, I'm also the uh, co-publisher and co-editor of the Big Sky Debate Briefs. We're now in our 
I think it's our 18th year of delivering services to high school debate teams across the United States, www.bigskydebate.com. And someday I will tell you about um, disruptive technologies as it relates to my small business, because um, I think that uh, we've... A, Things have changed quite a bit in the last, uh, uh, you know, dozen or so years that we've been doing um, uh, our products. And I think disruption is a good way of describing some of the, the forces that we're noticing. So good stuff. All right. You're great. Well, Thanks, Wes. Thanks for hosting. It was good. And, hey, we actually seem to look like we know what we're doing tonight. Unlike <laughs> other nights when it's looking like the first time I've ever touched a computer. So, yep, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I had Internet access, which is always a plus when you're doing an Internet-based show. So. It helps. Okay. Awesome. <laughs>